How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I had a conversation with Ahmed Evans. He is a deep sea salvager diver person. Yeah, he basically dons the equipment and goes way, way, way down into the water and salvages things and repairs things. And it's fascinating. Um, the beginning, he's a little more technical, describes how, well, first he talks about how he got into it in the first place. And then he gets technical about the breathing apparatus and and all that. And it's really, really fascinating. And then he talks about some of the creatures he experienced uh, in his adventures. Uh, very cool episode. Hope you enjoy it. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Um, it, it really helps. Uh, hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook under Hey Human Podcast. Um, and Twitter is Susan Ruth is on. It's just my personal Twitter. And then, um, what else? Hey Human obviously is on the all the podcast apps. So when you're telling your friends and family and all the people you know, and you say, hey, listen to Hey Human Podcast, you can tell them it's on Android apps and on iPhone type apps. So it's everywhere. And of course, heyhumanpodcast.com. Speaking of heyhumanpodcast.com, feel free to email me there, Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. And uh, also, there is a donate button on there. If you are so inclined, a dollar, five dollars, fifty dollars, it would be super helpful. Um, I'm trying to upgrade my situation so that things aren't so echoey and a little less of the technical uh, issues that I have. Again, doing it all myself, so um, it'd be cool to build out a little room at my house so that um, the soundproofing is a little better and and things things are more. Um, I don't know, professional? God forbid. Thanks for listening and spreading the love. I'm getting awesome emails from you guys and um, keep going. Y'all keep liking it. I'm going to keep going. So here we go. Hi, Owen Evans. Hello. How are you? Thank you for being on Hey Human. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, you are, are you in Seattle presently? In Seattle, yeah. Okay, all right. And uh, you have a very interesting career. You are a deep... Well, I said deep sea. You said commercial, but you have to go deep into the water, so I'm going to say deep sea salvager. Deep sea diver, commercial diver, and occasionally salvage diver, yes. Okay, so start at the beginning. How does one... What? did you? Were you like a big swimmer as a kid or something? Did you... Well, I did grow up on Lake Washington across the street and was always in the water nonstop, but uh, I actually started going to school for for marketing, and uh, then you know, I'd go to Alaska fishing uh, to, to help pay for everything, yeah. and uh, came back one year, and me and a friend went to Cancun and Cozumel, and... When we were at Cozumel, we went to the national park there, Chunkanob, and all we did was go snorkeling. I'd never breathed underwater or anything. But I went snorkeling there, and I just had such a great time. And then I, what I really liked was 
what really caught my attention was looking at the people who worked there. Mm. And, you know, they're all really fit and just, you know, laid back and smiling and enjoying themselves thoroughly. You know, they probably weren't making that much money, but they're loving their life. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, that's what I want. <laughs> and when I got back to... To, uh, that, that was after my last trip in Alaska, mind you, too. So I had a, my last hitch my, of my last contract was just terrible enough to make me want to quit, where a couple other guys that had worked there a lot longer than me quit as well. So I wasn't that greedy anymore. And uh, so I decided I wanted to switch and turn to marine biology. When I was going to U of O, you know, I, I made that switch, and then I wanted to... I wanted to be the one that's in the water. I just knew I wanted to work underwater most of all. I figured that's a good way to do it. And then I talked to so many people there that they're all divers. So many people in the courses were divers that would just scuba divers or they'd uh, volunteer for uh, search and rescue for the state of Oregon or the county. And uh, when I started asking my professors on how could I be the one that works underwater with this degree? They're like, oh, get your doctorate. And every one of them said that. And uh, it was just like, I don't know if I have that kind of commitment. I'm <laughs> 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 like, not even a master's? Like, no, you'd just be a hired paid researcher. So uh, one of my friends, a good friend of mine, her boyfriend uh, had gone to school straight through and it went through uh, three years and then the summers as well. And then he graduated early. And then I was watching him come back every two months or come through town every two months. And I asked him what he was doing. And he was like, oh, uh, didn't you know that I'm, uh, you know, I got a, I got a job diving. I was like, doing what? What are, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm a scuba instructor at Club Med in the Cayman Islands. And I was just like, what? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, man, yeah, it's. It's not great money. It's like thirty-two grand a year, and this is nineteen ninety-five. And it's like, it's like uh, you know, it's a uh, thirty-two grand or ninety-four. Thirty-two grand a year. Uh, you only have bills six months out of the year, and my only and his only bills in Cancun were, or in uh, in the Cayman Islands was his alcohol bill. <laughs> and he's like, basically I'm teaching bikinis how to dive, bro. And I was just like, Dude, that's what I want. I'm like, greed has left my body. I want that. <laughs> and then, so I was determined to get just that. You replaced one deadly sin with another from greed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just like, I, w I want that. I want to do that. Yeah. And, uh, so one of my friends, her father owned, a set of fishing boat or a fleet of fishing boats in California and Alaska. So I decided to join on his boat in Alaska to do salmon fishing for the first time. And, uh, it just ended up being the worst salmon season in 20 years at the time. So I didn't make quite the money I needed to do this scuba school in marathon key, Florida and go to, or, and go to, uh, and not go to work and, uh, you know, do the 10 weeks of school, not, uh, and get all my equipment, didn't have all the money to do that. And so then, uh, I had moved back from Oregon and, uh, decided to check out, uh, commercial dive school with our mutual friend, Jerry.
Jerry and I went and checked out uh, Divers Institute, which we had no idea any of this was a job, and we saw it, and we just saw everything they were doing, and we were just like, wow, like, what is it? Okay, and we went and checked out uh, financial aid the next day, and then signed on right there, and that was, that was over 20 years ago, <laughs> and uh, then when we graduated, Jerry went straight down to Louisiana. I tried to stay up here in the winter months trying to find a job as a new guy fresh out of school. Teaching scuba uh, diving or what? what no, was no, hard hat commercial diving. Oh, and, so you uh, immediately could graduate from that Divers Institute and then go into commercial diving. Yeah, but you start out, you know, at the bottom. Usually it's, you know, <laughs> That's kind a of tender. <laughs> well, you start out as a tender, maybe not go into bottom. Really, I should, I should say you start out on deck. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you're the guy that's helping with everything and setting everything up and, and, uh... Well, what does commercial diving mean at that point in your career? Well, so there's, there's different ways you could go. So we went down to the Gulf of Mexico and that's, you know, where people want to break out. They want to, they, they, they want to usually back then it was like two or three years of tending where you're learning everything on surface and you're diving occasionally and uh down there they do so many big things you know installation of platforms and pipelines and you know uh removal of such things too as well you know just big heavy stuff all the time and uh but if you stayed up here, if you stayed in a union area and done inland stuff or stuff like around here where it's it, some of it might be in the ocean or whatever, but uh, you'll do smaller things and you'll do salvages, smaller salvages, and you'll do ship's husbandry and you'll you know work on piers and docks and all that. And even as a new guy, you can get in the water a bit more, but you're also getting union money. So you're getting paid better. <laughs> what is uh, ship husbandry? Is it when you take whatever they need, any maintenance, anything you need to help with? If they need valves done, or if they need inspections done, or if they need anodes put on uh, for cathodic protection, or if they, you know, maybe I was on one not too long ago where I had a boat that had just been built, where they do adventure cruises had just been built. I just spent millions and millions of dollars on this thing, and they went to lower it in the water. And they use air roller bags to lower it down in, and uh, one of the mooring lines holding it broke. So one side, well, actually the back end dipped down fast and hit bottom on the way down, on the way into the water, and bent their wheels up, oh, no. bent their uh, propellers up, and so and and the rudders. So we had to go remove the rudders and remove the wheels. And, uh, and this is stuff where you literally have to go underwater, pull it all apart, and rebuild it while it's. In the water? Well, they with that, they were probably just going to pull it back out and dry dock it because there's no way the Coast Guard would have cleared them to go if if they just uh, put new wheels on and went back because you'd have to check the shaft, too. If the shaft's off just a little bit, it could destroy the boat. We do everything in the water, so... Especially Gulf of Mexico is a lot different because you're diving deep depths all the time. And, uh, you, you know, you're with... Coast Guard approval, you can go past 300 feet with surface diving. So surface diving meaning you're, you leave the surface, you go down and work, and then you decompress, come back up, and get out and go into a chamber and decompress more. 
So you can go, you can go up to 300 feet, and then you could even go past that with uh, with Coast Guard approval, like only like 40 or 50 feet past that. Because, but normal what, because you would what smush down there, your lungs would. No, no, it's 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 just because the dangers of decompression. So when you're going, say past, usually 160 feet is when companies will switch to diving heliox, which is. Um, well, it depends on how deep you are, but the mixture is usually 14% oxygen or sometimes 16%, but they get it lower because oxygen is toxic the more the deeper you go. With the more pressure, with the more partial pressure in the oxygen, it becomes toxic. But so does the uh, – well, nitrogen doesn't become toxic. It makes you really high. So they take the nitrogen out of the air and they, and they put uh, helium in. So – you're breathing helium and oxygen mixed together. Yes, you are. You are talking like that. And they have radios that kind of descramble it and kind of gets it a little lower. It's still hard to understand unless, you know, until you're used to it. Most people you can understand after a while. But, uh, you know, if you're diving deep air, just picture yourself at the dentist getting gassed. That's, ex- that's what it's like. And, I've never I've had seen that. Guy, oh, I'd say, okay, well, I've seen guys, have you ever had whippets? That's what it's like. I have done <laughs> that. The, if you, I, I've seen guys that were, you know, 20-year divers be down at like 160 feet or whatever, and they, well, one in particular, was one of my friends, he went down, the down line he followed to bottom was tied to a corner of this mat that's tied to a pipeline on the other side and he had to go down and follow the corner of that pad and follow the edge of it to the pipeline and he couldn't do it he lost it and was just floating around didn't know what was going on yeah and finally he's just like they call it being narked so it's like oh man i'm narked so it's called nitrogen narcosis so yeah it was uh was like yeah narked pull me up and it wastes a dive but it can also hurt and you can also put yourself in danger so that's your the nitrogen hitting your your brain cells. Yeah, yeah. Once cells? you pass ninety nine feet, the deeper you go, the stronger it'll get. Oh, so what do you do with somebody like that? How do you protect them? You pull them out of the water. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you and you and Jerry went your kind of your separate ways after you. Well, no, we both ended up down in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, okay. And uh, there I stayed for 14 years working strictly in golf companies. Doing pipeline? Pipeline, yeah, uh, oil field support, so. Was it scary? I mean, those things can blow up and stuff, right? Uh, well, not really. I mean, the, the thing, how divers die usually when something's blowing up is either because something is under pressure and hasn't been isolated, and it's energized, as you say, and maybe you're supposed to be cutting into it or whatever, and then you get a big surprise. But another one, the, the probably the most common one, is by burning underwater, so cutting underwater using a torch, cutting steel or concrete. It is, a, you know, it's a, using a Broco torch. It burns underwater at about 12,000 degrees. So Okay, stop right there. How do you make a flame underwater 
electricity and oxygen and a spark. Ah. So you have a hose and an electrode taped together coming to a torch. And the, the oxygen hose goes into the torch head, and so does the uh, electrode. But then you put a Broco rod, which is hollow on the inside with these little magnesium strips coming out. And, uh, and it's basically, uh, it's, it's a, it's a alloy around the, around the, the, as the tube holding everything in and you put that in to a, uh, a little receptor that is connected to the electricity and you tighten it down. And then in the center oxygen, you, you hold down the oxygen, it starts blowing out and then you tell them to make it hot. So they electrify the electrode and you hit what you're going on, you know, clean piece of metal and it'll spark. You have ground in the water somewhere. So there's a, so there's somewhere for it to make a complete current to. And, uh, when you strike that arc, you know, it creates a hot spark and the oxygen will catch it and then it'll just burn the steel underwater. But the problem with that is, is when it burns that hot, you're burning water and you end up separating it. So you get hydrogen and oxygen separated and so then you got hydrogen pockets. If you have not burned out a vent hole or made sure there's some way for your gas to escape above you where on the object you're burning on, then uh, or hydrogen can collect and start getting lower and lower to that flame. And when it hits the flame, it'll explode like a bomb. <laughs> Holy crap. So that's why you always make a vent hole above or make sure there's some place that your bubbles are going out. Wait, and you do you can do that with that. a literal vent, or do you do that in some sort of way that cuts No, you just you burn a hole above you. You can burn a hole above you, a slit above you, a hole. Uh, in the or water. If it's, yeah, in the That's water. I'm trying to wrap my brain around that. You take the torch, you go above you, you make a slit in the water, and it, that... You make a slit in what you're burning on, what you're going to cut. So if you're cutting a platform leg, you go above it, a few feet and oh. where you're going to cut and you make a hole and then you start your burn okay, got where it. you're going to do it and you make sure the bubbles are actually coming out of that hole because okay. sometimes you'll think, okay, I cut a hole up there and I'll just do this and you don't check again and there could be a barrier in between where you're cutting and where your hole is. So you always have to check to make sure there's some bubbles coming out. And or, as we call it, communication. An explosive tank at the same time on your body. No, 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 no. Now, people, people, and, and we're wearing air tanks. And, or if it's deep, it's helium and oxygen. But uh, whatever you're breathing on bottom, that's what we have in our emergency tanks or bailout tanks. Uh, everything else is all by umbilical. Oh, so those oh, are just emergency tanks. Yes. So you have unlimited, well, potentially unlimited supply of gas, of breathing gas, if you need it. But really, you're limited by time for decompression. But if I mean, if you're stuck down there, then you know, if you're still getting stuff, you're, you know, that's that's good. <laughs> so, and oxygen is not flammable. It is not flammable. <laughs> oxygen. Help stuff burn really well. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. I'm saying that if there's an explosion and you're wearing oxygen, then I would imagine it would be an accelerant. But yeah, but you don't. You don't. There. See, when we watch dive movies, it drives us bonkers. Because uh, we get everything wrong. 
Yeah, people talk about oxygen. Oh, you need your oxygen tank. That's not an oxygen tank. See, now if you're breathing pure oxygen under pressure past 40, 50 feet, it can kill you. <laughs> because it becomes toxic. And it's called O2 toxicity. And sometimes people get it when they're decompressing in a chamber because you're breathing pure oxygen at 40 feet and you're taking air breaks every 25 minutes. Take a five-minute air break and then you start again on oxygen after that. But that helps That helps uh, expel all the uh, – helps your body expel all the nitrogen or helium bubbles that have saturated your tissues. But that's what decompression is. But some people are – susceptible to, to uh, O2 hits, we call them. So you get O2 toxicity and, you know, you'll go into convulsions and everything. And you have a mask on in the chamber. And if you go into convulsions, you're not going to be able to get the mask off. So we also have an air hose pumped into the same plumbing as the oxygen that goes to the mask where you can kill the oxygen and turn on the air. And then they'll have air pumping to them and they'll be fine after that. Is somebody yeah. watching the decompression? Yes. I somebody is running Somebody is running a decompression chamber the whole time you're in there. You're and that's, that's ship side. That's on top of yes, that. Yes, that's on, that's on surface. Yeah. So did you make it to, uh, to Club Med? No. <laughs> well, not, not in that capacity. <laughs> but I mean, you never got to teach I did make it to Club Med, but, and funny thing is, I didn't even scuba dive there. I, I went snorkeling. I ended up going out to, uh, to Stingray Island, Cayman Island, Grand Cayman, and that was awesome. Yeah. That was one of my favorite experiences in the water as well. Really? Snorkeling, yeah. snorkeling and having a, uh, having a uh, large stingray try and suck the hairs off my chest thinking it was food. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> so, do you ever go to shipwrecks and things? Now we do that a lot. So, because now I work with Global Diving and Salvage out of Seattle, and they do a lot of salvage. And when I made the move from my company in the Gulf, uh... It was one of my friends from dive school that called me up and said that they're busy up here and need to work. This is the place I thought I would always come when I moved back home and, you know, settle down. But it's like, yeah, we need you. And I'm like, all right. So the first job I went on was in Mexico, salvaging some, uh, a, a jack-up boat. So these drill rigs and everything, they have platforms underneath their, underneath the boat, underneath their vessel, underneath their hull, I guess you'd say. And they have these long legs sticking up. And then they jack, when they get in a position, they jack down the legs until that pad hits the bottom, and then they start jacking the whole vessel out of the water, so they become a stable platform. And uh, we had a vessel like that, that one of the legs punched through, or a couple of legs punched through the bottom after a while, it just get, hit a soft spot and sank, and the way I had to salvage that. And then I had to salvage a bridge uh, out of the well near you when I was near you last time when uh, in Kentucky uh, Kentucky Lakes the Egner's Ferry Bridge got hit by a missile a, a missile transport barge during during a high high flood and uh, took out the bridge and we had to go cut that up but then from there they sent me to the coast of Concordia in Italy the large you know the the, the cruise ship that sank over there that oh, yeah. ended up being the largest salvage in human history so. That was a pretty cool job to be on. <laughs> okay, so here's a question. When you go do something like that, are you prepared to see people on the boat when you get down there? They had already uh, taken them out, except for two people. And we weren't. We didn't go in anymore. They had 
I mean, it was a huge vessel, so they had people scouring it before we started trying to salvage it. And you were just trying to get the boat. You weren't trying to get belongings or, st- or anything like that? No, no. We just, we were, the boat was sitting on the side of Gilio Island, and it's a, I don't know, maybe like a 35, 38 degree grade of granite underneath, so... It was pretty steep going down, and this thing was laying on its side, and we couldn't cut it up in big pieces and take it away because it was a marine preserve, and there was a lot of endangered species there. So we had to be able to float it away, and to do that, we built a false seafloor that went from offshore into land. So when we could roll it over, it would be sitting fully supported as if it was sitting on a flat bottom. So we had platforms put offshore and then we uh, had a series uh, or just thousands and thousands of these large grout bags, which were basically like, I don't know, bigger than California King mattresses and uh, about three stacked high. Each one was like three California King mattresses stacked high and probably twice as long. And we were filling those with concrete and Mm -hmm. we'd, tie them in certain areas and certain levels. So you had at the, the end result, you had a false seafloor that matched the contour of the bottom of the boat. So when we rolled it over, it was sitting upright. Wow. And uh, while it was still on its side, they basically put water wings all down one side of the vessel and then they parbuckled it or they rolled it over and then it was sitting up and then they put water wings on the other side and then they dewatered those, and it floated up, and they towed it away. That's oh, so cool. How long does something like that take? That took just about a year and about two point two billion dollars. <laughs> Whoa! Who pays for that? The the cruise ship line, or no? It was uh, partly Italy paid for it, and probably the EU a little bit, and uh, Lloyd's of London. <laughs> oh, insurance. Yeah. Wow. I bet the insurance policies on those things are insane. Yeah, well, that was a little different because of where it happened. Because a lot of times when big ships like that happen, you can just, if it's near land, you can just cut them up and drag the pieces away. Because when I was in Santorini in 2011, the caldera, you know, the big, have you been there? Uh-oh. So it's called the caldera, um, I'm probably pronouncing it a little wrong, but um, it's the big, basically, cup. <laughs> and in that cup, along the uh, land is a cruise ship that sank a few years before. And uh, yeah. it's still there, apparently. If it's not going to threaten anything, we'll get it away. Or they can leave it. But uh, So if the hull isn't the, breached, if the oil doesn't come out, gasoline, well, whatever? Well, really, I mean, it just depends on the cost. <laughs> yeah. If it's going to be out of the way, whatever. You can go in and defuel stuff without taking the boat away. And it won't hurt the yeah. environment? Not as much <laughs> I mean, you're still gonna have stuff rusting and you know falling or whatever but it also turns into reef as well but you know Giglio is a small island with 800 permanent residents and it's a beautiful little tuscan island and a big tourist spot for italians and this thing was sitting right by the main harbor and you see it when you come in with the ferry and uh 
And it was a fantastic island, but they wanted it gone and they wanted us gone. Even though we brought them a lot of money, <laughs> they still wanted us gone, most of them. We had over 400 people there at all times for Whoa. over a year. Did you learn yeah. Italian? Uh, not really. I just learned how to say some things, but I... I mean, the food was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and gelato. Even mm -hmm. if we didn't eat on land, if we just ate on the barge and we still went to land, we would uh, make sure we had gelato every single time. Yeah, so good. So good. I read somewhere that there's about 3 million shipwrecks in the world. It could be. I mean, so now that I'm in Seattle... I moved here to spend more time with family because yeah. so you know we, we you know we moved to Japan and that was for me to spend more time at home. But then Costa Concordia happened, and then I also went on this job in uh, northern BC near Prince Rupert called uh, or when we uh, took oil out of the uh, Brigadier General M G Zelinsky. It, it was a it was a 1946. Army transport. Well, in 1946, it was an army transport that sank, and it was it was a boat from like 1903 or 1913 or something like that. But it sank when it, in a storm. All the people survived somehow, and see, this place was in the middle of nowhere. So back then, it's amazing. People, everyone survived. But it was direct. It was perfectly capsized, sitting on this ledge where the, the deck of this boat was probably at about 140 feet in the hull, so the top of it was only up at 90 feet when it was, a, I guess, a, a low or a high tide. And then right or part of it was hanging off that ledge, and below that ledge, it goes down to like 400 feet. And we had really big currents, really big tidal exchanges, uh, lots of logs and trees and stuff floating around and you know really bad currents so we'd only be able to dive once in a while but we had this huge support team there because this was a big uh political thing this whole event was a big political thing is to get the oil out of there even though it's been there for 70 years <laughs> but i guess a uh an oil company had built a receiving and pumping station in the middle of nowhere, this beautiful untouched land for a pipeline that hadn't even been approved yet. So everybody, all the First Nations people were rather upset. All the local fishermen were rather upset. And just people who lived there didn't want something like the Exxon Valdez happening there. So sure. uh, the, the, the Canadian government spent $50 million on this whole, on this whole production where, you know, I think, I think our, our contractor's bid was like $6.8 million. <laughs> and all this money went to do everything else. But they also had us, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere, so they had to stay in, in these floating fishing lodges where people normally pay like, you know, like $4,000 for three nights. And we were there and uh, uh, using their chefs, staying in their rooms. And <laughs> it was fantastic. Wow. <laughs> it was probably my favorite job. I liked it more than the Italian job. So how yeah, many of you are there in a job like that? How many of people like you that have your There, shift? we had probably, we probably had about eight or nine people per shift total. And uh, like the Costa Concordia, that was, we were a subcontractor. And there were three other dive teams, or, or three dive teams on on shift. 
So there were two shifts. So we had six dive teams consisting of 12 people each. So yeah, we had 72 divers out there. And so. you have to keep rotating it out so nobody gets sick, right? Yeah, well, just to so you can keep diving while people are decompressing. You can get another guy in the water and he dives. And, What's and, decompression uh, feel like? Nothing. Okay. Feels boring. Feels boring. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't feel like anything. If you end up feeling something when you're coming up, then something's wrong, and you have to go back in for a lot longer. Have you had that experience? I have one time. I I got bent in my shoulder. I got a bubble in my shoulder. They call it the bends. It's decompression sickness, but you you say you take a hit or you got bent by taking a hit in my shoulder, and I thought it. it well, I thought I had just stretched something, that I pulled something, and I kept trying to stretch it out and kind of go away. And this is after my dive, after my decompression. And uh, it started hurting a little more later on. I was like, God, oh, what is that? And then, you know, and then by the time I went to bed, you know, it started hurting a lot more. And I was like, man, what is, is this? Is this what is this? Could this be a bend? I don't know. I'll take a bunch, I'll drink a bunch of coffee and take a bunch of ibuprofen, thin my blood. You know, in case there is a bubble, maybe I could get it out of there. And then I woke up a couple hours into my sleep, and I didn't know why until I moved my arm, and I was just in such pain. So I knew I was going to go spend a lot of time in a chamber, so I I got up, charged my Kindle, or plugged it in, because I had a couple movies on it, and... Uh, <laughs> Then I went down to the galley, grabbed some food, and it's the end of the job, so people are starting to disconnect a bunch of the dive equipment, but the chambers are still there. And uh, all the guys are in there eating, and I was just like, hey, any guys feel like running a chamber for about six hours, maybe more? Like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, my shoulder hurts. Like, well, let's hurry up and get you. I'm like, hold on, I got my Kindle charging. And they just realized that I went, they realized I charged something and then, you know, came down to eat. <laughs> I knew I was in for a long ride. It ended up being about a 12 and a half hour ride. Is too. there a bathroom in there? No, there's a bucket they'll send in, uh, a, a pee jug. And if you're unfortunate enough to be in a chamber for days, which I've seen people that's happened to, it happened to Jerry once, then they will send a bucket in for you. <laughs> so, okay, so that feeling you were having, what, that's there. That's that an air bubble in your vein or something? It was an air bubble in my joint, and it started getting bigger. And what will happen if it, that will that it'll just, you know, it'll just cause damage. Now, say that air bubble is on your spine or on an artery in your, your, in your head. Yeah. yeah. So that's. That's why as soon as you figure out something's wrong, you got to go, you got to get in and they'll press you down till you get relief. They'll press you down to pressure. Once you get relief, they'll start, they'll, they'll figure out your uh, treatment schedule from there. And they have a doctor, especially a doctor in Louisiana they can call who knows this stuff off the top of his head. He'll so just... they stick you in the tank and they, they start bringing the pressure in the tank down to a point where your shoulder doesn't hurt? Yeah. Which will Mine was it. at 80 feet. And at 80 means, feet, mine stopped hurting. Does that mean that you got the bends at 80 feet? Is that what that means? Well, no, it's just the bubble pressed down small enough to where it hitting anything at 80 feet. <laughs> oh. and, uh, and, but then there was also residual pain from just being sore from having a bubble in there. And uh, they decided I should be in there for 
12 hours, 12 and a half hours. And there's another guy in there. They push another guy in there with you who gets to ride with you to check on you the whole time. And they give you neuro exams while you're going through it. But wow. that was the only time it's happened to me. And I've, I've I lost one friend due to arterial gas embolism where he came up way too fast and basically a bubble popped in his brain. So, uh, so he was actually, uh, <clears throat> he, he started about two or three months after I did. So we start we started coming up together and then I had moved, I think I was living in England at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and he was on a platform. He had just done a deep gas dive. And when you do deep gas, you have longer decompression in the water, like 90 minutes usually. Where you stay, so that means you're underwater. Yeah, you're slowly coming up in stages, and you're breathing. You know, you're breathing. Uh, and once you hit ninety or go past hundred feet or go shallower than hundred feet, you're breathing fifty-fifty, which is half nitrogen, half oxygen, and uh, so it helps with your off-gassing. But he was at his, I think, his first water stop on air, like hundred twenty feet or so, and. He was on a platform, so he's on a solid, solid place to decompress. And a manta ray swam through the platform he was on, caught his hose, and just started swimming really fast. And they're just one big muscle. So it pulled him up to the surface in less than a minute, when he had another 90 minutes of decompression left. And he was screaming on the way up. One of my friends who, you know, who was a diver I really looked up to, who had been around a while, he was running his radio. And other friends of mine were on the job, but they, he stopped screaming right before he hit the surface. They got him on the boat. They put him in the chamber, blew him down past the depth he was at. And, uh, he started coming to a little bit. The damage was already done. So he had already, he, he, yeah, he was, you know, he just, it's, it's like opening up a, you know, champagne bottle. You have all those gases in your tissues under pressure. It opens suddenly like that, comes up that fast. That's how fast it will come out in your body. and your, All that gas will come out into your blood and just hit everywhere. Talk about a random situation to have a sea creature take you out like that. That's the only time that's happened. But then when I was working with that company before I came to Global... There was a policy of if there, you know, you can, we have sonar underwater a lot of the time so you can see what's around. And when we would locate a large manta ray, we would stop. And then another guy actually, his hose got hit a little bit. It didn't catch him and pull him up, but scared the holy hell out of him. <laughs> is the manta ray, I mean, this is kind of a dumb question, I suppose, but do they just think they're having fun or are they just clueless? No, they probably just hit it and like tried to get off it. Yeah. And just kept swimming. And they're just one giant muscle. (laughs) Yeah. So, what's the deepest you've been? 300 feet. What is that like? Well, all you're thinking about is how much you're getting paid when you're doing it. (laughs) Really, to be honest. (laughs) And, well, you know you're 300 feet, especially if it keeps going below you, which mine did. Because we were on a series of uh, platform inspections, of pipeline inspections, or riser inspections, where you know we'd hit 300 feet on, or close to it on so many of these dives that you, know, you just look down and it keeps going. But uh, 
It's just it's on just, and on and on. Blackness? Is it just pitch black down there? Dark blue to black, yeah. Well, it depends on the water. But usually you're in nice water then, so... And uh, if it's night, then yeah, if it's night, it's just dark. <laughs> but, uh... But then that makes you know, my chest you, pound now. <laughs> well, you can go room. a lot. You can go a lot deeper than that. So these days, a lot of times when there's a project that's going to be a while and it's say 160 feet or deeper, uh, they they could you you can even go past a thousand feet no problem and do this. But uh, then they'll put people into saturation. So saturation is where you're living on deck in a series of chambers. So you're staying in there at a certain storage depth, they call it. So you're staying at a depth that's close to the depth you're going to be working at. And you have stay to under pressure. to get into the... No, no. You stay under pressure the whole time. So you're living in there, and when it's your turn to work, you go into what they call the transfer lock, and it's hooked up to the bell, a dive bell, and you climb through the transfer lock, and you and your partner get in there, and you seal up the bell, and then oh they seal up the transfer. They they seal up the tra- the TL they call it, and then they they uh, they uh, they disconnect the bell from the from the system, and then they lower the bell down to whatever depth it is you're working at. And when you're down to that depth, you can open the hatch, and one diver will go out and start diving. And you're dry inside, but or relatively dry inside. And then he'll work out. He'll work for like you know five six hours, and then he comes back in. And then the next guy, he switch. He gets dressed. He goes out and works for another five or six hours. They come up. They uh, lock back into the bell. They climb out. Two new guys get in. And by doing that, you know you're getting out of about a twelve to thirteen hour round trip. You're getting. Uh, you know, 10, 12 hours of work wow, it's out of these two guys. And so it, it saves money, even though you're paying them a lot more money, but you get a lot more work done. It sounds like being in space. It is. It's, it is like being in space because yeah, it's just like that. Are you now, I know that oceaneering, when I worked there, they had a... Uh, they had at the meetings I go to, they had this, it was basically their super diver. So he, this guy was a, a sat diver, a saturation diver. And he had, I don't know, 700 something days in the can or whatever, maybe more. I don't know. And, uh, and he decided to go get his PhD and oceaneering works with NASA. They make all the tools for NASA and everything. Well, once he got his education, he got into the space program, and then he became an astronaut. So you have a there. There would be a picture of this guy working underwater, really deep somewhere, you know, like seven hundred feet underwater, and uh, and a little side shot of him. And then above it, there was a picture of him almost in the same position, but working at the end of the space shuttle arm, you know, working on a satellite. <laughs> So, yeah, it was pretty neat. But. That is so cool. Okay, so what is the scariest... Wait, before... Okay, there was another question I had. Are you extra strong underwater? I've always wondered that. Well, 
if you're asking me, I work out all the time, and it makes your job a lot easier. <laughs> but I mean, does it being underwater, are you able to lift something underwater better than, say, you could lift it on land? It seems like a dumb question, well, but it's, I'm not sure how well, gravity now, works some things, some things will have more buoyancy. Uh, heavy things that aren't really buoyant, you still have... It's still easier to handle in the water. Well... Yeah, well, yeah, because a lot of usually you're just diving by yourself, so you might have something really big and heavy that is coming down on the crane, and you need to move it around. And usually you can do that with a little more control, at least than uh, than on the surface. And stuff actually, it, there is a little bit of pushback from the water to make it appear somewhat lighter. I mean, mm. but you know, a two-ton chunk of seal is still going to weigh two tons. It's just going to behave differently in the water. <laughs> yeah. So the guys that are in saturation, um, and not to be sexist, I assume maybe there's women too, but... Um, yeah, there are. Yeah. So the people that are in saturation, I mean, you said seven months? What do you bring? A whole bunch of books on tape? What do you do? No, 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 no. Not seven months, y'all. I mean, the longest any one of my friends stayed in there was... Uh, 72 days, oh, and it was a really large system that was really comfortable. Mostly people stay in 28 days and get out. That's usually a, a hit. If it's an ongoing job, usually four weeks and out. Do you, do you ha Are you entertained like you are in the space shuttle? Are there books and things, or is it all You can wet? bring in books. You can bring in certain electronics or have them charged outside and brought in. Because you can't really have open circuits that you know are, that are a fire hazard. Because burning something under pressure that that that's basically an enriched environment with your oxygen will make it burn really fast. <laughs> so if there's something that catches on fire in there, everyone's dead, and everyone's dead really quick. And that's happened, of course. I've, I've... That has happened. Every rule we have, somebody's died for it. Yeah, that makes sense. What is the coolest and scariest thing you've ever seen underwater? For a while, my one of my last dives in the Gulf of Mexico, well, in Texas, was uh, the dive itself was boring, and the decompression was awesome because I thought there were six bull sharks circling around way above me. Like I was at my hundred, my first water stop, and my supervisor starts freaking out, and I'm just like, "What? What's going on?" He's like, "Oh, I just don't, I don't know. Never mind." I'm like, "Just tell me." <laughs> like, oh, it looks like we have a bunch of bull sharks going around up here. It's like, how many can you count? And I look, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I see them. Looks like, looks like there's about six. One, you know, one really big one, and then a couple that are close to his size, and a small one." And uh, as I got further up during my decompression. You know, I kept seeing them come on one side, go under the barge, disappear, and then later on come back again, like they're doing circles. And then as I got to my 50-foot stop, the big one was swimming by, and then I'm looking at him, I can see his eye, and his eye finally shifts on me and realizes I'm not part of the bell that I'm on. And then he comes over to check me out, swims right over me. And then the other ones follow because he's going over. He's like, oh, great. And I'm like, did you see that? To, the, to my supervisor watch. He's like, yeah, I saw that. 
you recognize that you're something different now? Oh, no. And he was like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, this is pretty cool. I'm like, yeah, all these are definitely bull sharks. And, uh, and then my 40-foot stop, which is my last stop, you know, I was like, hey, move everything out of my way to the ladder because when you pull me back, I'm going to have both my knives out and my legs up. You know, and I'm just going to be looking out for sharks. Like, yeah, okay. Hello. Yeah, just pull me, pull me straight into the ladder and I'll be fine. And then, uh, and then your last minute, you have to get, you have to purge all of the breathing, uh, gas that you've been using because it's not just regular air. And then you switch to air. So it's like, okay, ventilate for air. And I'm ventilating. And then the big one comes over me along with a couple of the other ones. I'm just like, oh my God, dude, this guy's got to move. And my supervisor's like, you have to come up. I mean, you have to come up no matter what. I'm like, I know, I know. Because you don't want to get caught and you can get bent. And you can, all this other stuff can happen if you don't get in the chamber in time. And uh, so he swam over me and finally he went away. And as soon as he turned away, I, I had to come up. And uh, I make it to the ladder. I go get in the chamber. And then I have like three hours in the chamber decompression. Then I come out and it's like, why aren't we diving? They're like, oh, uh, we're, we're, we're closed down for sharks. I was like, really? It's like, yeah. He's like, well, you know, that shark came up right up to your ladder when you went by. And uh, <laughs> or when you got out, he went right up to the ladder. And I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. He's like, yeah, but what we thought were six sharks. Turns out we've counted 31 with 17 that are at least 10 feet tall or 10 feet long, along with the 12 foot tiger shark that we had seen the day before. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Because the thing is, they're just coming in groups. I kept thinking it was the same group, but they just kept coming in and going away. And there was a lot of current. They're hanging in the shadow of the barge, the shadow that the barge was creating. So just hanging in the lower current and then coming out few at a time. <laughs> you weren't scared? You were just like, oh, that's cool? Or were you not? Well, it was adrenaline. It was adrenaline, and it was, you know, it was, but, yeah, it, it was really neat, and that was my favorite dive until I was diving on the General Zelensky, the the boat that was full of explosives. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that army transport boat was full of bombs and jeeps and 50 cal bullets, and we were cutting everywhere into it and looking into it and seeing all the stuff, but one of the holes that we... I was cutting into one into the side of the boat this one time, and I was at the very end of my dive. I had three minutes before I have to come up, and I'm almost done with this hole. I've been working hard at it the whole dive, and then this something just reaches over and grabs my hand, and I just look at it. I was like, what is that? I was totally annoyed, and I realized it's tentacles. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and I look over, and I... I, re I reach all the way over, full wingspan, so, you know, a nice six-foot wingspan, I reach over and start petting the head of this octopus, because it's a giant octopus, but it's only about half half full-grown, and uh, and so I'm, I have a full arm span, he was holding on to my arm, and uh, so he was six feet from there, so it's probably a 12-footer, I feel, you know, to the other side of him, and diving in that water we were wearing hot water suits which are they have hot water pumped into them because the water's so cold and uh the the octopus could feel the hot water so he wanted to come get some and uh there's like don't let him get on you don't let him get on you you have to come up you have to i'm like i know tell it's like tell me you have video going oh man i gotta switch i gotta switch it's like oh my gosh and then uh, i'm like oh i got my gopro and my gopro was dead i only caught a, half a glimpse of it 
It's like, oh, my GoPro's dead. I'm like, you got to come up now. I'm like, okay. And so I came up the top of the boat, and I keep squeeze at the bottom of their tentacles, and they'll let go at the base of their legs. And uh, so I keep having to do that to keep them off me. I'm starting to go back over the hull of the boat. And we have all these little ports sticking out of the hole that we had installed to pump oil out. My hose got caught on one of them. And he had followed me up, and he was now on top of my hose. And when I went to pull it off, you know, it kind of got taut and hit underneath him. And then he spread out like a star. And it was so cool. And I was like, cool, tell me you got that on video. Oh, I forgot to press record. I was like, you are killing me. (laughs) But then uh, I got my hose, got in the stage, and I had to leave right away. And he came up right below me. And once he realized I was going away... He switched from like this kind of happy, lighter reddish purple color to this really dark crimsony color. You know, just like he got mad. <laughs> but I'm like, I was like, did you see that? I was like, yeah, I think you pissed him off. We're leaving. <laughs> but that was my most enjoyable dive right there. I wow, loved that. That's so wild. It's crazy. Well, an octopus, they're super smart, right? So, yes, yes. I feel like he was probably new had a concept of what you were. Yeah, and he just wanted the, he wanted the heat from us. Well, he also, uh, the same octopus also cost the, the project a lot of money because he, when we were exploring one of the holes we cut and seeing what was inside and see if there was oil or whatever, we put in one of our little ROVs in there. The things, the, the remote-operated vehicles. So this thing's only, I don't know, it's like the size of like a, I don't know, like a like a small cooler. So, you know, like like a 16-can cooler. It's this little teeny thing that swims around. But we went in there. It has camera and lights. And they were they had it going through. And then all of a sudden, you see tentacles grab it and pull it to the side. And they're trying to get it back, trying to get it back. And then it pulls it further in and finally gets it wedged somewhere. And we tried for hours to try and get this thing out. And finally, we just had to we had to get the okay and cut the cable because we had to order another one because yeah we were just stuck on it because we we couldn't stay connected to the boat with all the tides and everything so we end up having to uh cut it get a new one those things it's like 25 grand for one but then we had to get another one up there just to get that delivered where we were in a day was seventeen thousand dollars <laughs> just for the delivery <laughs> But yeah, so he saw he saw somebody something coming into his place, and he put it down to where he wanted it. <laughs> it's so funny! And now he's just uploading like Skype or something. There's probably yes. an <laughs> channel. <laughs> so so that, one, that was that was a really fun job as well because we we had the uh, Gitgaa people out there. That's one of the First Nations tribes. This president would come out, and we had uh, we had Discovery Canada for. One of their little adventure shows. I can't remember what it is. It's a it's a weekly show they have, but we were on that too, and we did really well. We didn't have any big spills or anything. What's the one place you'd like to go that you haven't been to yet? Like um, Palau. Where? Palau. Oh. That's a no brainer. <laughs> and why? Because it's one of the most untouched marine preserves on this planet. <laughs> and when I when we lived in Japan. We had planned on going there. We just didn't plan on moving back as soon as we did. Right. Are your kids so, into diving? Do they want to get into it? 
Uh, I've put my son in my helmet. He's dove my helmet before when we lived in Texas when he was like four. Four or five. About four, I think, yeah. But uh, I don't know. They're, they're into whatever. My daughter's into gymnastics and Mako's into soccer and flag football and ultimate frisbee and basketball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He has a shark, so I hope he dives. <laughs> Since his name's, well, he's Mako, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's so and my nice. daughter's Monica Coral. Really? Yep. Oh, so cool. Um, have you ever been able to bring anything back to keep, or do they make you turn everything over? I have a lot of really nice shells that I collect on the Gulf of Mexico. When I was in the Costa Concordia, I collected a plastic dessert dish that is totally nondescript and worthless, but it is from the Concordia. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the General Zelensky, I collected some old soda bottle that I keep. I don't know. Yeah, just little trinkets for myself, really. Nothing, yeah. you know, nothing really nice or special. Sure. And we look. We look around. But we, you know, some things we're not supposed to touch, so we can't. Yeah. So, okay, the octopus is the weirdest. No aliens underwater, huh? You know I want to know about aliens underwater. I haven't seen any... Uh, Abyss creatures yet. No, did you yet. like that movie? Still looking. Well, that came out. What year did that come out? I don't know, forever. I loved that movie. I cried, of course. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a big movie we'd all watch. And, you know, there's big problems that we'd all have with it with decompression or lack of decompression. And living in a facility like that underwater is just ridiculous because it'd be so expensive. <laughs> I always wondered about that pink stuff they were breathing. Was that real stuff? Yeah. That is not real stuff. Okay, so we heard they probably heard. have something like that that they've been working on, but people don't use that. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's all so fascinating. I feel. I hope I haven't forgotten something. Is there anything I'm forgetting that you might just toss out there that you think is good knowledge? Well, so most of the stuff I've talked about are the larger projects. Now that I live in Seattle, I do a lot of the local ones, especially since I try and stay closer home because uh, of my mother being sick so yeah. so uh so i mean we do stuff in saudi arabia too and i was supposed to go there this summer but it got canceled and uh but i've stayed close because of that but you know now it's local stuff so you know get called i can get called right now and say oh the ship sank need to go defuel it or need to do this so we do a lot of emergency response uh I don't know if you heard on the news, maybe, I don't know if it showed nationwide, but like a, a plane crashed outside Alki Beach last week. Wow. And everyone lived. They just landed. They had an emergency land in the water and uh, went to shore. And then we went out and plucked it out the next day. And, mm-hmm. you know, we do, a, there's so many boats that sink around here. So we do a lot of salvage that way. Isn't the use of Lake Washington? I remember growing up. Um, that my parents used to talk about how many planes and ships were in Lake Washington. It's one of well, there was old stuff from like World War II, yeah. and you know, and planes crashing in there when you know training and stuff. Because I know not too long, not too far back, they found some World War II planes in there. I'm pretty sure. And uh, but you know, there's also supposed to be Lake Forest Park, it's supposed to be an actual forest of some sort down there, like a petrified forest. That's what I hear. I've never been there, so. <laughs> yeah, but we do a lot of local stuff, so we support, you know, all the, the, build, the rebuilding of the, the waterfront here. I've worked on that a bunch of times, and, 
and uh, some dive companies are actually helping with the, or they were helping with Bertha, with the or with the tunnel because they are actually under pressure down there, so they have to somewhat decompress when they come out. Oh, interesting. Well, decompression uh, used to be known, or, or decompression sickness used to be known as caisson's disease, which is which they learned from people working on the caissons for the Brooklyn Bridge. So they have these caissons that go all the way down to the river bottom and people are working in the dry down there, but they're still under pressure and they don't realize it. And so they would just come up, you know, no decompression. And, and you know, a lot of people would get bent, basically. They call it caissons disease. So that was like the first real knowledge gatherer for for modern decompression was was the brooklyn bridge where people weren't even diving and so with the with bertha people are underground and underwater but they're not in the water you know they're just in air but there's they're at a higher pressure down there so they make sure they decompress somewhere i mean it's not that much of a pressure but so we have i have divers who were running the chambers as those guys were coming out that's so fascinating i never would have thought of that so you, yeah. you have to be careful not to fly and stuff after doing all that, right? Absolutely, yeah. Or I've even been on jobs. So last year I was in Northern California and we're working on the dams up in the Sierra Nevadas. So it's, you know, it's, you know working up at 5,000 feet and uh, you'd have to be careful. We'd have to be careful of if we're working lower and staying higher. We'd have to watch the times to make sure it was safe for the guys to, who were diving that day to go back up to the upper elevation. Mm-hmm. So, because we drive down from the town we were staying at to go work on this dam, and we'd have to watch, you'd have to make, we, we were basically having really, really short bottom times, because if you would, if, if you were in the water too long, have a lot longer decompression, and then you have to go up, to the town, you you would you, you still have to do a certain amount of time before you could leave, so you'd be sitting there for hours waiting to go. <laughs> so crazy! It's that, that, that was my first time experiment or, or experiencing that. Yeah. But it's like, oh, we can't put a diver in past this time, or otherwise we'll be sitting here all night. Because <laughs> you can't go home because your home is so high. Well, because you have to wait for him to be decompressed enough to where he can go up in elevation a little bit. Yeah, where he's staying. That, yep. It's extraordinary to me that just when you were saying that you look down and you can see it just keeps going and going and going and going. I've worked, so I worked on uh, a couple of the... Uh, tension leg platforms that are in like, you know, a couple thousand feet of water or I can't remember the name of this one, but it's this big spire platform. So it has 16 anchors holding it out in all these directions. It was in 3,300 feet of water and it's just one long column that goes down into the water as it's, as it's basically it's counterweight and it's stable stabilizer. And also that's also where the pipes or the, the, the oil comes up and everything. But it goes down 600-something feet into the water, something like that. But that's machine-built, right? Machine-built, yeah. machine-built. But working on the side of that and looking down, you just see this thing go down forever, and the water's crystal clear, but it just turns into this you know, black midnight blue color down below you. Then you have gigantic 
uh, barracuda swimming around you and large triggerfish, which triggerfish like to bite you. They have these big, nasty-looking... They almost look like human teeth, what they're made out of. and uh, But it's more like this uh, compacted, narrow vampire mouth just full of fangs <laughs> well and they're and they have really strong jaws and really strong skin but they, they they use these teeth to bite through barnacles and so the really big ones bite through really big barnacles and they will come and bite your skin where it's exposed because there's like mm, food <laughs> oh it's so crazy wow what a fascinating career choice it's it's got to be so exciting. Does all that uh, oxygen keep you young, too? <laughs> oh, yeah. Right now, my beard growing out, and I got gray in it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not digging it. I just did this two weeks ago for my daughter. You have to get that just for men beard wash. <laughs> no. I'll let my gray fly. <laughs> Ahmed, you are awesome. Thank you so very much. This has been sure. fascinating. Wait, glad to help. Oh my gosh, it's so interesting. Of course, secretly I wanted you to say that you've seen Atlantis or, you know. No. So magical down there. I, I went snorkeling uh, once or twice and was pretty much terrified. Snorkeling, so snorkeling is what got me into this. Before dive school, I had never breathed underwater. Yeah, it's a weird, it's weird. Your brain tries to tell you, what are you doing, you idiot? You can't breathe underwater. And you're meanwhile, you're trying to breathe underwater. And it's a really bizarre yes. moment in your brain to go, okay, it's okay. Well, see, and I, I absolutely love it. That's why I still do it, even with the other stuff that goes on that I may not love. I love being in the water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you're going in the water, especially if you're going somewhere deep, it's really cool. And you're just like, yep, this is what I do for a living. Awesome. Yeah, yeah better than being in an love. office. Exactly. You do what you love. I do. <laughs> so. Absolutely. And oh, not, please, not, my love.